0: Hello and welcome to Let's Talk MedTech, the premier podcast for the medical device and diagnostics industry. My name is Omar Ford and I'm the managing editor of MDDI, an online publication owned by Informa. On this episode of Let's Talk MedTech, we're going to be speaking with Dr. Antonio Chin about surgery site infections or SSIs. Dr. Chin is the director of research for the Division of Adult Reconstruction and Total Joint Arthroplasty in the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at Brigham and Women's Hospital. Dr. Chin specializes in hip and knee replacements, and we're going to be drawing on her experience as an orthopedic surgeon to talk about SSIs. For instance, why were they once taboo to talk about? Uh, What changed in thinking about SSI's, what technologies, what strategies are put in place to handle SSI's now? It's such an incredible conversation. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're also going to talk about being an orthopedic surgeon during a pandemic. How are the patients responding? Uh, What are procedure volume flows looking like? It's going to be an incredible, an incredible conversation, and I can't wait for you to hear it. But first, I want to talk to you all a little bit about the medical device and diagnostic industry, MDDI. Yes, MDDI is a resource exclusively for original equipment manufacturers of medical devices and in vitro diagnostic products. The goal of MDDI is to help industry professionals develop design and manufacture medical products that comply with complex and demanding regulations and market requirements. NDDI is also your one-stop shop for all content related to the med tech and diagnostic industry. Want to know what the large cap companies are doing? Want to know what the small cap companies are doing? Want to know what trends are going on in med tech and diagnostics? MDDI online is your place to go and you can find it by going to MDDIonline.com that's MDDIonline.com and now let's talk medtech with Dr. Chin. Dr. Chin thank you for coming on let's talk medtech I appreciate you being here.
1: Thank you for having me this is a great opportunity to talk.
0: Sure, sure. want to just dive into this issue of, of SSI for a second and really understand what the problem is and what the issue is with it, and if you could talk about the impact that it's having on hospitals.
1: Surgical site infections are the bane of our existence. We wish they didn't exist and we wish they never occurred, but unfortunately, they do. In fact, they impact a lot of patients. They occur in two to five percent of patients undergoing surgery and it increases a patient's likelihood of being admitted to a hospital by 500 percent and scary enough it can actually double a patient's chance of death after getting a surgical site infection and obviously it affects the physician it affects the patient it affects their families as well as the whole healthcare system a single surgical site infection can cost up to $39,000. And in the U.S., there are over 780,000 surgical site infection cases per year. So the cost is between 3.5 to $10 billion. So it's a big deal and it affects our healthcare system where we could use those dollars to hopefully treat other patients or prevent other medica- other problems with our patients instead of treating surgical site infections.
0: Why do we seem to to have so many? And what are some tips or how can we mitigate this
1: So we have them because we have bacteria on our skin. So whenever we do an incision or make a cut into the skin of a patient undergoing surgery, the bacteria that's naturally on our skin and naturally lives there can actually get into the wound itself. And in most cases, a person or patient's natural immune system can clear it but not in all cases. And when it can't clear it, that's when a surgical site infection can occur. So there's a lot of different ways that we can actually prevent surgical site infections. So prevention is key, right? If you wanna prevent a surgical site infection from happening, that's what we wanna start with. So this happens with sharing information with patients before surgery or optimizing patients before surgery by making their blood sugar ideal or making their um, uh, weight ideal or things like that to reduce their risk of uh, uh, surgical site infections. Next, during the actual operating room itself, we as nurses, surgeons, healthcare providers can use certain products to improve our patient's likelihood of not getting a surgical site infection. So for example, antimicrobial substances, for example, antimicrobial sutures such as Epicon Plus is very useful because it gives another layer of protection from the patient. So as you're closing the wound to try to fight off the bacteria, you close up, the, we call the fascia or the tissue with these sutures and it reduces the likelihood of bacteria growing in that area. Once the wound is closed, you can add an extra layer of protection by putting a covering on top of the wound and by sealing up the wound, you prevent bacteria from getting back into the wound. Throughout the whole time, we want to mitigate risks while we're doing this. So mitigating risks such as hand washing, prepping the skin, things like that during the surgical procedure that we have control over to reduce the likelihood of infection. And finally, we want to establish tools. So if we have surgical safety checklist, environmental cleaning protocols, deep terminal cleaning at the end of the day, these help manage surgical site risk factors much more proactively. And if someone sees a problem with it, for example, they see someone break the sterile field or see something that's not right when it comes to sterility, then they should say something. And by doing so, we can reduce the risk of bacteria colonization and then reduce the risk of surgical site infections.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I want to go back to, to uh, knowing some of your options and, and having products Uh, online that can really deal with this. Um, Does it take a great bit of research? Um, How is it that you can, how is it that you come about uh, finding the devices, finding the equipment really needed to curb this issue?
1: That's a good question. So when it comes to finding the right things to use, for lack of a better term, is that a lot of it comes from our colleagues right so what are other colleagues using you know i've talked to my colleagues and they use antimicrobial sutures and then so i use them or i use a certain type of dressing that helps prevent the bacteria from getting into the wound Um, there's also really good literature out there so when it comes to publications there's studies that look at petri dishes where they you know for example take a suture put in a petri dish and it doesn't grow the bacteria around it there's also prospective studies mainly looking at patients Going forward, or looking at patients going back, which is a retrospective study. And this is all published in medical literature comparing different types of suture types and showing that there's a reduction in surgical site infection. Also, there's a study that looked at surgical site infection. so looked at um, using these sutures and seeing that the temperature of the skin goes down as well as inflammatory markers meaning every patient that undergoes surgery gets a little inflammation afterwards, can we reduce that inflammation afterwards that can predispose a patient to infection. And these are where the benefits are. So we see this in published areas as well as through colleagues that can make a difference. And word of mouth makes a difference. And we know that we wanna do the best things for our patients. So I wanna glean as much from medical conferences, from reading and being able to benefit our patients in that way.
0: It's, it's like a community, um, you're discussing it with your colleagues and uh, you, you brought up something interesting about the, the medical conferences because I think during, and I'm going to bring the C word in here, COVID, uh, I think <laughs> uh, we weren't allowed to travel as much, we did everything through Zoom, but I can remember going to conferences of the past and I, I won't mention any, um, but I can remember going to some of those and just seeing some of the ideas uh, being shared, not necessarily uh, at the podium or, or at center stage, but more so at a quiet table when colleagues are discussing issues, when they're talking about, hey, what are the best practices used? Or or, or are you seeing this? Haven't seen you in a year. What's been going on? You know, we're missing those, uh, <laughs> those intimate settings. And I know that they're coming back, but it, it's just very interesting. You said, you mentioned that and you said community. Well, yeah, I said community yeah. <laughs> rather. Yeah,
1: <laughs> You're exactly right. We're, we're just starting to come back to it. And it's just not the same to, you know, talk over Zoom with someone or go on the phone with someone, which is helpful. But, you know, someone has a complication. You want to talk it through. You want to walk through things. But you get a roundtable of four or five friends and all of a sudden you're sharing ideas. And you, know, like you said the best thing is we're trying to protect our patients. But at the end of the day, that we want to share ideas that make it better for our patients. Um, And the other thing I find interesting, too, is walking through these conferences, as you said, it's not on the podium, but you walk through those exhibit spaces, right? And you see the latest and greatest and everything there. And that's really where a lot of the change is happening. Because, you know, as as doctors and surgeons, unfortunately, we do the same stuff over and over again, because we were taught that from years ago. (laughs) Um, But there's newer stuff that's out there, right, that's actually beneficial for our patients. And learning about that in those settings is Unparalleled.
0: Yes, yes, agreed, agreed. I want to go back to another strategy, and um, this is sharing the information with patients prior to surgery, um, and especially if they or their family have previously experienced SSIs. Um, what I want to talk about, in you know, in reference to that, is we're seeing patients and. We're seeing patients take more ownership of their health care right now, of their health, and mm-hmm. we're seeing patients become more interested uh, in, in health. And when you develop these plans and you talk to patients, we, we're seeing greater patient engagement. Uh, mm-hmm. For this particular strategy, I want you to go back maybe – to the, beginning of, to the beginning of your career or, or when you first started practicing medicine, did you see the same, d- do you think that this uh, this strategy would have the same impact that it has today?
1: I think it has a stronger impact today. Exactly what you're saying. Patients are more engaged and patients are reading more, mm-hmm. understanding more and learning more. I have patients coming in and say, look, I read about this product or I read about this approach or I read about this technology system, and I really want you to use this, or is this beneficial for me, or tell me more about it, you know, so it is interesting that patients are like, hey, there's this dressing that's available that, you know, you put on some mesh, and you you paint over it, and it's a flexible dressing, or my friend had it, you know, or my aunt had it, or my mom, or my dad, or someone had it, and they're like, it was great, I really loved it, can you use it for me too, and so patients are, coming in requesting it. Some are requesting it. Some are just asking for more information. They want to know my opinion as a surgeon and what I do in my practice and why I do or don't use something or I'm willing to try things or not. And so I actually really like that because patients then um, take an interest in their own health. You know, a lot of things with surgical site infections has to do with the personal hygiene. So if a patient doesn't take a good care of their, if a patient doesn't take good care of their wound, that's problematic. Right. So if they're engaged in the upfront when they start before surgery, then they'll be gauged after surgery as well, too. So they want to be a part of the process.
0: OK, let's talk a little bit about sterilization. Um, and I want to relate that. I'm going to bring up the C word again, COVID. Um, <laughs> I want to talk about that. Um, uh, I don't want to say post-COVID, but let's say after the pandemic has hit, are we seeing different or more stringent sterilization protocols. How is sterilization being looked at now that we have COVID and we've had all these concerns with the pandemic?
1: So, from a sterilization standpoint, for example, instrumentation or packaging and things like that, that has remained constant throughout. In fact, it's probably the gold standard of why things became sterilized and things like during COVID. Um, That said, what I think the benefit really has been are patients taking their own hygiene into account, right? So with everyone wearing masks, for example, or wearing gloves or things like that. One, we're getting sick less often, which is nice. Mm -hmm. Um, My patients aren't canceling because they have, you know, sore throats or runny noses and things like that, that they'd have to in the past. Um, And I also think we're really careful about being super sterile and stringent about technique. Um, And so we're cognizant, to infections in general. And this probably has made us a little more cognizant. Um, And we're probably quicker to say, okay, let's do more preventative strategies. You know, what do we do for COVID that we didn't do before? You know, when we tell a patient to to shower three days beforehand with a special solution that's really beneficial um, prior to surgery, but patients are probably more adherent to it now right? Understanding that infection can be such a devastating complication. And so, you know, knowledge is power. Once they have the education that, that surgical site infections or infections are terrible things, they're likely to take it into their own hands and do it. So COVID has actually heightened that in a good way. Um, and I think it's here to stay when it comes to at least being clean and our, getting our patients you know, ready for surgery, during surgery itself when we prep a patient, and then what we can do to mitigate them afterwards.
0: Sure. I want to ask you now about the worst SSI horror story you've ever heard or you've seen. Um, and be as gruesome as you'd like, if, if that's can. you can. You're
1: killing me. I want people to actually listen to this.
0: <laughs> well, well so. I kind of want to illustrate how this can be a problem if it gets out of hand and out of control. But yeah. So
1: there's. Many, unfortunately. So, in the grand scheme of things, I do hip and knee replacements. Mm -hmm. And because of that, while my infections are devastating and terrible, they're much worse ones. So, people do die from surgical site infections, right? Mm -hmm. So, I remember the worst one that I saw when I was a resident, a patient got um, a surgical site, got got an infection, essentially, in their uh, private area. And it systemic, and when it goes systemic, they lead to something called sepsis, where your whole body can go into full-body shutdown. You know, your organs don't work as well, there's bacteria in the blood, they're giving you antibiotics, and that's the most dangerous and the most scary by far. Um, and that's what a surgical site infection can turn into over time, so that's probably the worst one. From a gruesome perspective, from my world of hip and knee replacements, um, the worst is when, let's say you have a patient who's infected, you take out their implant, you may put a spacer in there, you go back in again, they get infected again, and this is part of the hard part, it's multiple times in the hospital, multiple surgical uh, surgical interventions, and eventually they got an amputation. Ooh. And so yeah. again, while they're alive, that's something really hard to live with, right? And that's not something we want as our end goal. And I, I do one amputation every you know, five years. It's not a common thing to do to treat a surgical site infection, but when it gets so bad that you can't eradicate it, then you might actually end up with an amputation even after trying a fusion. So that's that's the hardest for me. That's the hardest one for, um I, you know, I could show pictures, but no. thankfully, you can't <laughs> see the gruesome pictures that I could
0: show. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll take your word for it. No, no. Pictures, no pictures. <laughs> <That's smart. laughs> um, where do you see us if, if we looked at a timeline and I'm going to go back five years and I'm going to jump ahead another five where do you see us at in the the treatment of SSIs right now or the prevention? Uh, Where were we five years ago? Where are we today? And where does it look like we'll be five years from now?
1: That's also an interesting question because five years ago, I said 10 years ago, I started interested, I got interested in studying surgical site infections because I saw the devastating effect that it had on my patients Mm -hmm. and emphasis was just not there. I mean, very few people were talking about it. People were experiencing it, but it was almost like a hush, hush topic, right? Mm -hmm. You just didn't want to deal with it. You treated it and you moved on with your life. Now it's exploded. We have, I'd say three prong approach, prevention, diagnosis, and treatment. So the diagnosis area, especially in my arena of hip and knee replacements, has been actually really hard in the past. In most other parts of the body, it's pretty obvious when it's a surgical site infection, um, but diagnosing it, you know, knowing is half the battle. So knowing that first is the key. And then prevention has taken a whole different realm. It used to be that anyone could undergo surgery and they would just call it a day. And we didn't do something called risk stratification, which means we're basically stratifying patients by risk factors of surgery. So if a patient is really, really high risk of surgical site infection in the past, Five years ago, they might undergo surgery. Um, but now we're saying, okay, can we make you better? Can we optimize you? Can we reduce your risk of sur- uh, surgical site infection? Because we know how devastating the effects can be. And from a prevention standpoint too, we've taken a lot more in our hands in healthcare. For example, in the surgical wound itself, you know, what we irrigate with, what we clean with, adding antimicrobials or antibiotics to the wound itself, closing with antimicrobial suture, dressings, covering, um, antibiotics before and after surgery in some cases. So we've taken a lot into our own hands. And then finally for the treatment of it, it used to be just wash it out. Well, now we wash it out, but then we use a whole host of antimicrobials that we've developed over the last five years. So in the next five years, I anticipate it only to grow more. I think we'll have more in our armamentarium with regards to prevention of patients, whether it be prevention of surgical site infection in patients. So whether it be different irrigation solutions, different types of sutures, different types of dressings, different types of, you know, lights or, you know, tissue delivery systems that can actually put in antimicrobials into the wound to prevent the bacteria from colonizing and making a full-blown surgical site infection, that's already being in development now. It'll just go through FDA approval and things like that in the next five years and really give us a lot more in our armamentarium as surgeons to help prevent these for our patients. And from a treatment perspective, I think you have things like phages, where we can use potentially less invasive therapies to treat our patients to get rid of surgical site infections.
0: What do you think shifted the mindset from 10 years ago? Um, you, uh, you were saying that uh, it was more hush hush. You know, you just treated it and moved on. What do you think shifted that mindset? Do you think maybe the the more knowledge that or the more um, I guess discussion about it, um, new technologies uh, arising. What do you think kind of changed the uh, the thoughts on SSI's? I
1: think there's a combination of the two. So. It used to be that people would just take care of their own things and they said, stop talking about it. But now we talk about a lot more. So with the explosion of things like social media or podcasts like this or (laughs) uh, platforms to discuss things. And, you know, we've always had conferences, but there's much more like open access journals now and things like that. So I think people now are on the platform of exchanging ideas. And it used to be there was only one or two experts in surgical site infection. And again, people didn't want to take care of it because it was disgusting or gross or not fun to take care of, right? We joke it's the gift that keeps on giving. If you get infected, you have a higher likelihood of getting infected again. Now, all of a sudden, it's one of those things where people are taking them on. Um, They're trying to get rid of them. We're trying to eradicate it. So by making it a more public issue, so for example, Ethicon is doing a great job of doing this in their um, campaign with zero starts with one, where we're trying to reduce surgical site infections one by one so that it goes to zero and by bringing this to light you know by not showing the taboo subject i think more and more people are jumping on the bandwagon of treating patients and because of that companies as well as individuals become interested in innovating so they innovate for prevention innovate for you know uh, diagnosis and innovate for treatment to try to make surgical site infections go away as well so once it's the ball starts rolling it just keeps gathering more energy which is fantastic and so hopefully we can get rid of it and the final thing is that i think patients are not becoming aware of it you know again patients probably just accepted okay a surgical site infection is just a potential risk factor, which it definitely is, or a potential complication after surgery. But now can recognize that okay, I want to take matters into my hand, own hands, or try to you know guide my healthcare and try to prevent these infections or try to treat these infections better. So it is nice that it's a whole conglomeration, I guess, of healthcare going towards this and being not afraid to talk about this and wanting to take the next step with it.
0: Sure, sure. But but then you'll have a patient like me who will Google and he'll see the, the, the least little thing and he'll think, oh, my gosh, I'm about to die. <laughs>
1: so, <laughs> Don't worry, we're right at that two in healthcare. <laughs> yeah,
0: Yeah. yeah. Um, Dr. Chin, I want to ask you one last question. And, uh, you know, I, my editors would probably jump all over me if I didn't ask you this. But wanna wanted, wanted to just talk a little bit about what you were seeing in um, with orthopedics right now, being that elective surgeries have kind of um, been in a state of flux in some places. Uh, just what you were seeing, is it uh, are we facing a bottleneck or is it pretty busy now? Or just want to get your take on that and what you've heard from your colleagues as well.
1: Well, the C word, COVID, has definitely affected all of us. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> I think it's definitely a geographic geographically different in different areas or what's happening with regards to orthopedics in general. So for us here in the Northeast, I'm in Boston, it is um, business as normal. It is actually um, probably busier now than it was in the past because everyone held off on their care for the last year and all of a sudden now are all coming back for their care. So it's ramped up exponentially in all honesty at this point in time. What's been really interesting with COVID is actually the shift from more inpatient surgery to more outpatient surgery. So at one point in time during the second wave of COVID, we could only really operate on patients who could go home the same day because we didn't want to take up hospital space. Mm -hmm. So I think it's accelerated throughout the country as well, not just in hospital settings, but as as well as ambulatory surgical centers. And these we call ASCs, have become more busy as well with the impetus of trying to get patients home the same day safely and doing well so they can recover in their own homes. Not only does it reduce their exposure to organisms that can lead to surgical site infections, but patients are more comfortable in their own settings. So I think the the needle of orthopedics has gone more to outpatient surgery even in total hip and knee replacements, which historically, you know, 20, 30 years ago, you'd be in the hospital for two weeks and now you're going home the same day after them. So that's where the needle I think has moved there. Quicker recovery, um, and patients want to get back on their feet and get back to their activities of daily living. So it's been fun to watch that transition, and it's been definitely accelerated because of COVID. In the past, my older patients probably wouldn't have liked to do so, but now they're more willing to do so because they want to go home.
0: Yes, exactly. It's it's, it's such a change we're seeing. We're seeing again talking about the C word, we're seeing so much change and we're seeing everything not necessarily turned upside down, but rearranged in a sense. And I'm just always fascinated to talk about how this is affecting elective procedures and and just how patients are responding to it.
1: It's impressive. That's all I'll say. It's uh, nice to see that, Jane, and people like to talk about it with me. Um, and it's something that I always encourage, and we have a system set up for it now. So setting up the hospital system is path the battle. But once it's set, it's really nice to be able to have this as an option for patients.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Well, Dr. Chen, thank you for coming on Let's Talk MedTech. I really appreciate you uh, coming to the program today. Thanks for having me. Just one last question. Will you come back?
1: <laughs> Absolutely. I'd always love to talk to you.
0: All right. Sounds awesome. Thank you.